Lord God, I really don't care who wins the Super Bowl, so feel free to do what you want in that regard. But Lord, I do pray that you would cause us to preach. And Father, I pray that you would help me not to lie about you. That's kind of a terrifying thought to me. I thank you, Lord, though, that you send your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would impart your word to our hearts and that we would see you tru truly, not, not falsely. And that, Lord God, we would join in with those heavenly creatures, the 24 elders, the people around your throne singing the new song. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. showed that clip to you a couple years ago. That's Gregory Peck in the 1976 movie, The Omen. He's uh, shaving his son's head because they've had some discipline problems, and he's checking for the mark of the beast. Turns out that Damien is the Antichrist, and that would explain the, the discipline problems. <laughs> After I saw that movie in 1976 or 77, whenever I Whenever I saw it, I, I remember I was in high school. I, I remember that I had this uh, fear uh, about the movie. I almost shaved my head for fear that I was the Antichrist, or at least maybe, you know, marked by the beast. It was the 70s. And our youth pastor had shown the movie Thief in the Night at, at youth group. Hal Lindsey had published his bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth, you know, Hal Lindsey believed in the pre-tribulation rapture and implied that it would happen in 1988 because that was one 40-year generation from the founding of the nation-state of Israel. And that was important because people like Lindsey believed that there was this like prophetic gap in the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, Gabriel says this to Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. It's a remarkable prophecy. For 70 weeks of years, 490 years, uh, brings us to just about the time that Jesus Christ is crucified for our transgressions, putting an end to, to sin and anointing us as the new holy place, the sanctuary. Well, dispensationalists like Lindsay postulated this prophetic gap of at least 2,000 years between the 69th week and the 70th week uh, of Daniel's prophecy. They argued that the 70th week hasn't happened yet. And that when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he didn't mean that generation. He meant some generation at least 2,000 years in the future. 
And so the temple will need to be rebuilt and redestroyed by some sort of reconstituted Roman Empire before Jesus returns to do what he did not finish the first time around. It is not finished, so it, it would seem. Well, that's why fans of the Left Behind books are so supportive of the nation state of, of Israel, at least many of them, and talk about the European Union and get so worked up about any news from the Temple Mount. They think it's all necessary in order for Christ to come again. Many will argue outright or, or implicitly that when Jesus comes again, he'll do things differently this second time around. He won't look the same. His mercy will have come to an end and he won't get himself crucified like some sort of slaughtered lamb or something. Like I said, in the 1970s, I saw the movies, I read the books, I watched The Omen, and I was stressed. I was stressed for three reasons. Number one, I began to secretly dislike Jesus, even though I publicly professed Jesus. Number two, I wanted to save myself from Jesus and his great tribulation. And thirdly, I thought, what if I'm the Antichrist? Crap. I mean, I was a Presbyterian, so I understood the whole concept of predestination. Uh, I knew the Antichrist was predestined to be, but what a bummer to be him, right? Just the thought turned me into a Grinch. And a Grinch is an Antichrist. He doesn't believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. He believes that salvation belongs to himself. He even tried to steal Christmas. Well, that's why I almost shaved my head. I was worried that I was the Antichrist. And I was looking for the omen. Well, last week we looked at Revelation chapter 6. If you're new, you need to know that this is following a whole bunch of stuff. We looked at Revelation chapter 6, in which the Lamb opens the first six seals of the seven-sealed scrolls. Preterists believe that chapter 6 describes the Great Tribulation leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And, and there's a whole lot to that that makes sense. Futurists like Hal Lindsey believe that it refers to a seven-year Great Tribulation somewhere in the distant future. But last week we noted that it seems to describe things that, well, like we see every night on the evening news. Deception. Warfare, greed, famine, death, Hades. We also notice that these things are not the judgment, but they are necessary steps in the revelation of the judgment. And yet at the opening of the sixth seal, everyone does begin to see the judgment, even though most folks can't, can't understand what it means, they see the thing that comes from the very judgment seat of God. They see Jesus. And everyone runs in terror. And now listen very closely. They run in terror, but not because they see that Jesus has changed. They run in terror because they see that Jesus is eternally unchanged. 
Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. They run in terror not because they see Jesus has changed. They run in terror because they must change. For the truth will never change. They see the ultimate reality, and that ultimate reality is not the survival of the fittest. Like the reality of of a beast, ultimate reality is sacrificial love. They see a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne of God, the judgment seat. And so the first are last, and the last are first. The exalted are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. The human ego is an illusion, and everything that's anything is grace. They see the light, and it obliterates the shadow that they think they are. They see the judgment of God, John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been done by God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? We're about to find out. Next verse. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants, the slaves, literally, the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I, I looked. And behold, a great multitude, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb or that is the Lamb. So who are these guys? the 144,000 and the multitude that no man, no woman can number. You see, the answer matters. Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you 
and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Some say that that means that you're cursed if you curse the nation-state of Israel. And you'll be blessed if you bless them. In other words, Israel is your judgment. In Galatians, St. Paul argues that the blessing and the cursing referred to Abraham's seed that's in him, who is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So Jesus is your judgment. But no matter, no matter what, Israel is blessed to be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples, all the families of the earth. And now I know there are a million questions and concerns and, and issues here, but for now I just hope that you'd see theology matters. It matters to foreign policy and it matters to your heart. Even more importantly, it matters to your heart. How does the king of the Jews conquer? And who are these 144,000? And who is the multitude that no man can number? So let's pause for a moment and review Peter's principles for interpreting the Revelation, okay? You know some of these already, all right? So number one, the interpretation should be relevant to the people to whom it was sent. So it probably isn't just about stuff in the distant future. Number two, the interpretation should be relevant to whomever reads the words of this prophecy because John said, blessed is the one who reads. So it probably isn't just about stuff in the distant past. Number three, the revelation is a chirology, not a chronology. Remember Revelation 1-3, blessed are you who read for the kairos is at hand. The time is at hand. Chronos is calendar time, chronologies. Kairos is meaningful time. In chapter 10-6, an angel is going to say, chronos will be no more. In 13.8, John writes that the number of the beast, well, it can be calculated, for it's a human number. It can be calculated, and, and we'll do that, but it implies that the other numbers are not to be calculated and placed upon some sort of human calendar. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, and, and we're talking about the boundary between time and eternity. The numbers are not to be placed on a human calendar, but they do have profound meaning. So when you read seven, don't just count to seven. Think of the days of creation. Think of the Sabbath. Think of the Jubilee, 49, and a, and a perfect Jubilee, a Jubilee of decades, 490 years. Think of the fact that it is finished. When you hear six, think of the creation of Adam and the second Adam and a tree on a hill and the earth shaking and the sky growing black for the sun is covered with sackcloth and the moon rises blood red. And when you see 12, think of 12 disciples, 12 tribes, 24 elders. Remember, 12 times 12 is 144. And remember that 1,000 is the largest denomination in the Hebrew language. Think big and think in pictures. Number four, Scripture, all of Scripture, is the context of the revelation. Basically, everything in the revelation has already happened, appeared in Scripture, oftentimes over and over and over again. 
So you have, if, you, if you just go off and read the Revelation without knowing your scripture, there's a good chance it'll just turn you into a nut job and a very dangerous nut job. Number five, John and Paul give us our theological paradigm. I believe that John the Revelator is also John the Disciple for several reasons, but it means that the things that John says plainly in his gospel and in his epistles inform what John reveals in pictures in their revelation. Make sense? And this is also true with the Apostle Paul. In Acts 19, we read that Paul taught for two years in the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and, quote, all the residents of Asia came to hear him. Asia is the Roman province in which the seven churches are located. And John arrived in Asia after Paul. So when John refers to people that get sealed, he would know that his listeners would automatically think of what Paul said about people who get sealed in the book of Ephesians. And so back to our question, who are these guys? Number one, who are the 144,000? Number two, who is the multitude praising the Lamb on the throne because salvation belongs to our God that, that no one can number? And number three, what's this freaky weird seal? Most preterists say that it refers to Christian Jews who took the advice of Jesus in Matthew 24, fled Jerusalem, and took refuge in the city of Pella, uh, like uh, Josephus and Eusebius, I think it was Eusebius, uh, wrote about. Makes some sense. In the Left Behind series, they postulate that the seal is this cool cross tattoo that appears on the foreheads of the tribulation saints. And remarkably, that has some precedent in Ezekiel chapter 9. But in Ephesians 1 verse 13, Paul writes this, In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I think the seal of the living God is the Spirit of the living God, which fell upon the disciples like at, like at Pentecost, and people from every nation heard the disciples singing praises to God in their own language. The seal is the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I pray in tongues. I have for years, but maybe now more than ever, I, I do that a lot, and I believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are active today. I think I've seen most all of them in action, but I don't believe that's how you are to know that you've been sealed or that you have the Holy Spirit. L listen to what Paul wrote. When we cry, Abba, Father, that means Daddy. When we cry, Daddy, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The seal is faith. <laughs> that your Daddy is God. And you are His beloved child. It's knowing that he loves you. And nothing can change that. In that day, a signet ring was often a seal. It had the family name on it, and you'd press it into the wax, like on a, on a letter. It bore the family name. To be sealed is to know 
Salvation belongs to our God. And so no one can take it away from me. I belong to him. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Tribulation. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, the seal does not protect you from tribulation. The seal like protects you through tribulation. The seal guards your heart from the lies of the devil in Revelation chapter 9. And uh, the saints are actually, but the saints are actually conquered by the beast in Revelation 13. But even if killed by the beast in 13, the saints rise uh, with the lamb in Revelation 14 where the saints discover that they know a new song. (laughs) Crazy stuff. So who are the 144,000? The preterists say that they're those Christian Jews that escaped to, to Pella before Jerusalem was destroyed. The futurists say that they're ethnic Jews in the nation-state of Israel that convert to Christ after they realize that they've been left behind by Jesus, the king of the Jews, left the Jews behind. And yet the 144,000 are not really Jews. Well, technically, they're one-twelfth Jews. Jews are primarily descendants of Judah, which is only one of the 12 tribes. But now John sees 12,000 from each tribe. At one point, it became common to refer to all Israelites as Jews, but that was only after most of the tribes had been dispersed throughout the nation. So at the time of the writing of the Revelation, most of the tribes had been lost for 750 years except for those that had been left behind by the Assyrians and were now intermarried with foreigners and were referred to as Samaritans. Jesus, the king of the Jews, treats Samaritans like brothers. Remember, he got in a lot of trouble for that. Ezekiel 37, God says this, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Therefore prophesy to them, saying, I will raise you from your graves. Put my spirit within you, and I will bring you into the land. Wow. Even so, Israel is not just ethnic Israel. According to Rabbi Paul, Romans 11, Gentile believers have been grafted into the family tree. You know, Susan and I spat in a tube a little while ago and sent it off to the ancestral DNA thing or whatever, and we're waiting to get our results back, and I sincerely hope that they show some Jewish ancestry in me. But whether or not the DNA thing shows that, I, that I'm an Israelite or a Jew, I am an Israelite. And even better than that, I'm a Jew, because the blood of the king of the Jews flows in my veins. His father, his father, is my father. Not metaphorically, but actually. Even more, on top of all that, I'm married to the king of the Jews by covenant. That's weird, but it's true. To be anti-Semitic is to be anti-me, to be anti-Jesus, and to be anti-Christian. In Galatians, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. Now, some people in the United States and Great Britain call that replacement theology. But think about it. Isn't replacing the whole house of Israel with Judah replacement theology? 
Maybe even more, it's exclusion theology. I'm preaching full inclusion theology a la Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 36. I'm saying that Jesus is the king of the Jews and Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and all who curse him will be cursed for they have cursed themselves and cast themselves away from his presence and all who bless him will be blessed for they are the sons of the living God and through him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed for he himself became a curse for those who cursed him. He includes even those that exclude him by being excluded and included on their behalf. I mean, it really is astounding, but it's just what John said. He is the atoning sacrifice, 1 John 2, 2. Not for our sins alone, but the sins of the whole world. He really is like the savior of the whole world. At the end of the Revelation, we'll watch the kings of the earth who had been cursed and judged, cut by the judgment of God, will watch them bring their glory into the new Jerusalem through 12 gates that are always open. 12 gates bearing the name of the 12 tribes of Israel, built on foundations bearing the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, all of them Christians. All of them. All of them Christians who would be appalled if you suggested to them that they were not Jews. They didn't replace anybody. They fulfilled everybody. So who are the 144,000 that are so carefully numbered? 144,000, that's like a 1,000 times 12 times 12, the perfect number. Who are the 144,000 so carefully numbered just as the tribes of Israel were so carefully numbered before they invaded the promised land or conquered the promised land? You see, I suspect that they are what theologians have always called the church militant but not militant like the folks in the Left Behind books or the U.S. Armed Forces. Militant like those in Ephesians chapter 6 who battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. Soldiers who who take the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and gird their loins with truth and shod their feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace and take the shield of faith to quench the flaming darts of the evil one and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They're people sealed with the Spirit and clothed in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6. They're people called to declare the good news that God in Christ Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians chapter 2. For this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, Ephesians chapter 1. And now you may say, well, nice idea, preacher. But people like that get themselves crucified in the Middle East. Exactly. Revelation 14, verse 4, the 144 follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are the first fruits, and they have learned the new song. Do you remember the chief sin? And I suppose there are different ways of saying this, but you spend some time in the Old Testament. The, the, the chief sin of Israel and then Judah, and then Judas. Was it not the rejection of their calling 
that in them and through their seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Israel did not trust God for salvation and then refused to extend salvation to all nations. It's true that Israel was commanded to slaughter people in towns like Jericho, but it's also true, God makes it very clear, that those people were to be offered to him as sacred harem. And it's also true that God promises to bring all people to his holy mountain and make them all new. He's saving each one of us from ourselves, for each one of us is like our own prison, our own walled city in which we suffocate and die. Over and over, the, the prophets, the prophets criticize Israel. You want to hear criticism? Read the prophets. Over and over, the prophets criticize Israel more than the fact that Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem trust political alliances, trust foreign powers and idols and themselves for salvation, but not God. They think they save themselves and are thus so offended at the idea that God would save anybody else. And so when God is salvation, Yahashua, Yeshua, Jesus, King of the Jews, rides into town, they all shout, Hosanna, waving palm branches and white robes. They shout, Hosanna for his miraculous gifts and then crucify him for his love of Samaritans and Romans and tax collectors and sinners. They trusted in their own strength and then hid behind these immense stone walls, but the walls of Jerusalem did not save them. They imprisoned them in a hell of their own making until, until they saw the King of glory coming on the clouds with power and great glory, the Lamb on the throne. You see, I think the sin of Jerusalem was to believe that salvation belong to her. The sin of the Jews was to exclude the last and the least of these, their brothers, which was to exclude Jesus, the King of the Jews. The sin of Israel was to think, we are salvation. And so they ended up rejecting God is salvation, Yahashua, Yeshua, Jesus. Don't you suppose Israel of God, that we are tempted to the very same sin? Maybe even in the very same place, with the very same walls, maybe even bigger walls, for we don't simply exclude the last and the least of these. Some of us even say that God will torture the last and the least of these forever without end. I mean, we say, oh yeah, God is salvation. God is salvation, but he belongs to us. Salvation belongs to us. To believe that you possess salvation and therefore dispense salvation is to be an imitation Christ. The Antichrist. The beast is the one that believes salvation belongs to me and will compete with others in order to possess it. There's so much to say. 
But you see, I think that we are, or at least are to be, no, we really are. We are the 144,000. The church is the 144,000. We are the new Jerusalem coming down. So who is this multitude now? Who is this multitude that no one can number? They come from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. They're standing before the Lamb on the throne singing and shouting, Salvation belongs to our God! Do you suppose that this great multitude learned that song from the 144,000? Who were blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Revelation 7.10, they sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from whence have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. The great multitude that no one can number sounds just like the folks in that new Jerusalem coming down. For God says of them in Revelation 21, remember this? He says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Behold, I make all things new. And that's a quote right out of Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all eyes. So this is what we see coming down at the end of the Revelation. And it's what John saw in chapter 5 and 6 at the beginning. Remember? He saw every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them worshiping the Lamb on the throne. This is like the seventh day. And we're at the edge of the seventh seal. Now that's interesting, isn't it? This is like the seventh day when everything, absolutely everything, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is, is good. It's finished. This is the end. This is the eternal judgment of God, but coming down in space and time. Notice that they are, they are before the throne of God serving Him in His sanctuary. But they will hunger and thirst no more which implies that they may hunger and thirst right now. And the Lamb will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which implies that they may be crying those tears right now. Crying tears right now, and yet they're singing, salvation belongs to our God. Who are these people? 
Where, oh where, have you ever seen anything like this? The elder says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, therefore, therefore. So, so we need to stop and ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Because it's there for some reason. In other words, the great tribulation, whatever it is, has a purpose. It's not an end in itself. Remember, death and Hades are part of the great tribulation. That means death and Hades are not an end in themselves. They are not the end. Jesus is the end. Death and Hades serve the end, who is also called the life. Jesus referred, you know, to, to a time of great tribulation, which did happen in that generation, a great tribulation, but this is the great tribulation. Jesus promised us, in this world, you will have tribulation. Acts 14, we must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. 2 Corinthians verse 4, these tribulations, which is just so cool when you read it, you find out they're torture, imprisonment, flogging, shipwrecks. Paul calls them these slight momentary tribulations prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if we avoid the tribulation, maybe we also avoid the glory. Maybe it's unwise to work so hard at avoiding tribulation. Maybe if we got raptured before the great tribulation, we would actually be the ones left behind. Or the ones that never even started. The elder says, these are those coming out of the great tribulation, which means they were in the great tribulation. And he doesn't say these are those that have come out of the great tribulation, or these are those that will come out of the great tribulation. These are those that are coming out of the great tribulation. Maybe our journey through this wilderness world of ours is the great tribulation. Life is hard. And I hope you're aware of the fact that we're all going to die. And we will each see Jesus coming on the clouds with great glory, and you will run in terror unless you've learned the new song. Instead of salvation belongs to me, salvation belongs to our God. So what's so great about the Great Tribulation? That's the title of the sermon. What's so great about the Great Tribulation? What's so great about getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden? What's so great about an entire creation subjected to futility? What's so great about the Great Tribulation? Well, it's in the Great Tribulation that we learn the new song. It goes like this, the, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, See, it's through the fall on the sixth day of creation that we learn the glory of the seventh day when everything is good because of the logos sung into the chaos. 
It's in the tribulation that we come to believe and trust, because they're the same word, really, in Greek. It's in the tribulation that we come to trust salvation belongs to our God. And now I don't mean this in a small way, salvation, because it's not a small world in the, word in the Old Testament. It means deliverance or help. I, I don't mean this in a small way, but a, but a very big way. You know this. There are no good movies. There are no good stories that do not also include great tribulation. There are no good people. And by that I mean gracious people, grateful people, humble people, beautiful people that have not been through great tribulation. All the best sermons were preached out of great pain. All the best paintings were created out of incredible grief. All the best songs were sung by whose slaves and servants who experienced tremendous sorrow. Faith, hope, and love grow in doubt, despair, and loneliness. Life is born out of great tribulation. And Jesus called the great tribulation birth pains. In order to worship the Savior, you must believe that you have been saved through great tribulation. What's so great about the great tribulation? It destroys the lie that salvation belongs to you and reveals the truth that salvation belongs to our Lord. The lie is a prison in which you're trapped, like the pirate who tried to capture the moon, remember? It's your ego. The truth destroys the prison, just as the moon captured the pirate, set him free, and he began to dance. He captured the light, and lo and behold, the light had captured him and set him free. To sing or to dance, you must surrender your judgment to a greater judgment, right? You must lose control and then find yourself controlled by the logic of the song, the logos that fills the atmosphere all around you. You must lose your life and then find it singing and dancing. You must lose yourself such that your deeds are done by the logic of the song, the rhythm, the logos of the song. What's so great about the Great Tribulation? It allows you to see the judgment of God and surrender uh, to the judgment of God, your own judgment, and then begin to sing and dance along. The judgment of God is the logos of love. God is love. And now I must mention my sixth and seventh principles of interpretation, okay? Number six, any interpretation of the revelation which leads you to not do something that Jesus has clearly commanded you to do is the wrong interpretation. So, if you think the revelation is leading you to not love your enemies, it's the wrong interpretation. And number seven, it's the revelation of Jesus. And you already know who he is. He doesn't change. He's not love and the opposite of love. He's sacrificial love. And his name means God is salvation. Well, John sees the true church, the 144,000 
which I believe now is, is us. He sees the true church, 144,000, but the 144,000, they begin to morph into this multitude that no one can number, all gathered around the throne singing, salvation belongs to our God. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, that's what every pastor is trying to grab hold of and control and then sell and write about in a book, but how did that happen? It looks miraculous. You see, it doesn't happen through legislation. It doesn't happen through armies or global politics or any of the weapons or the principalities and powers of this world, the governing authorities of this world. It happens through people singing the new song in the midst of great tribulation. You might remember that in several places, Israel was commanded to put the choir in front of the army. I love that. It was on the seventh time around, on the seventh day at the blast of the seven trumpets, as Israel was led by Joshua and worshiped before God on the throne, on the ark. It was then that the walls of Jerusalem, or Jericho, came tumbling down. Jerusalem comes next. Joshua Jesus sang Psalm 22 in the midst of great tribulation upon the cross at the edge of the seventh day, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and the walls are still coming down. Paul and Silas sang in the Philippian jail. The earth shook, the doors flew open, and they conquered Europe with the gospel of salvation. It's like that Christmas truce thing. You know, you've read about in World War I when the Germans and the English soldiers, they started singing Christmas carols in the trenches, but soon joined in no man's land to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, like that. It's like all those stories that you read from the persecuted church where believers worship, though beaten and changed, they worship Jesus for who he is. And although they have no gifts, that although the gifts have been taken away, they still sing salvation belongs to our Lord. That's who he is. God is salvation. And the church in those places grows like wildfire. It's like what I witnessed in Romania when Christians joined hands around the house of a persecuted pastor, Laszlo Tokish, and started singing Christmas carols and would not stop. Although Christmas was illegal, illegal in Romania, and the bodies of thousands were piling up in the street, being gunned down for singing Christmas carols. They did not stop. And on Christmas Day, Romania was free. It's like you. You know, some of you are facing absolutely tremendous tribulations. <laughs> I know you. Your tribulations terrify me. <laughs> I think to myself, what advice do I give? I mean, I don't know how they're bearing up under such pressure. And yet you come here and you sing, Salvation belongs to our God. You think your life is inconsequential. But I'm telling you that God is using you to change the world. Really not Democrats or Republicans, not the Israeli government or the U.S. military, but you that sing the song in the midst of tribulation. Walls crumble, maybe not in your lifetime, maybe you won't see it. I mean, the seven churches didn't see it, and yet we're reading about them today, aren't we? Walls crumble, and angels long to look into your salvation, what you are singing about. I'm a pastor who wanted to really, Andrew's here, he's like my brother, I kind of wanted to do something else. 
But I watched my dad sing to Jesus in the midst of great tribulation, and I think I just couldn't help but want to sing along. Am I the Antichrist? (laughs) It's a big question these days. (laughs) Am I the Antichrist? Well, I think that maybe my ego is the Antichrist. John writes that the spirit of the Antichrist is in this world. Actually, Revelation 13, all, (laughs) this is crazy, all who dwell on the face of the earth worship the beast, and all who worship the beast get the mark on their forehead. Antichrist means imitation Christ. And you see, my ego believes that salvation belongs to me. That's why I compete with others. That's why I behave like a beast and have a hard time singing and dancing to any other tune than than my own. But I thank God for the omen. It's killing the Antichrist and setting me free. Philippians chapter 2, verse 127. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the good news and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen. I think that's the only place in the New Testament this word appears. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When you sing, salvation belongs to our God, in the midst of great tribulation, you become the omen from God that destroys the Antichrist and exhibits Jesus Christ to a watching world. That's it. Now, I know that this has been a rather technical sermon, and I may have lost some of you at points. And now you're wondering, what is Peter trying to say? I'm saying this is the omen that destroys the Antichrist and sets each one of us free. The sound wasn't sad. What? The sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then, the true meaning of Christmas came through and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches, plus two. And now that his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. With a smile in his soul, he descended Mount Crumpet, cheerily blowing hoo-hoo on his trumpet. He rode into Whoville, he brought back their toys, he brought back their floof to the Who girls and boys. He brought back their snoop and their tringlers and fuzzles, brought back their pantukas, their dafflers and wuzzles. He brought everything back, all the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. So the Grinch sees people holding hands 
and singing around the light that has come into the world, even though all the gifts have been taken away, it breaks down the walls of his heart, blows it up really from the inside. He joins the party and he cries, he, he carves the roast beast with a knife. In chapter 12, we'll see Christmas, and then chapter 17, we'll begin to watch the lamb and those with him conquer the beast with the judgment of God. It cuts like a knife. And this is the judgment of God. He took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the judgment of God. This is the light that has come into the world. This is the judgment of God that has descended into great tribulation and is enthroned in our midst. And so who are those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb? Who are those that gather around the throne and sing salvation belongs to our God? They are the omen. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. Amen? And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that from the foundation of the world, you paid it all. And you exhibited on a tree in a garden 2,000 years ago for all to see that you paid it all. And through your Spirit, you whisper in our hearts in moments of worship, I paid it all. I've got it. Believe me. And so, Lord God, we sing a song in the midst of great tribulation. And we thank you that nothing is stronger than the song because the song is a manifestation of the Word. And the Word is a Word that comes from the throne. God is salvation. Jesus. We worship you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, because we're an institution, I'm a pastor, it's tempting for me to say, hey, uh, do the stuff and the, do the stuff I told you, go to the class, join up, and, well, you probably won't have any tribulation. <laughs> but that's a lie. Jesus said, look, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome, I have conquered is the word, nikao, the world. That, that's, that's why you can sing. The evil one whispers in your ear, he doesn't love you and he hasn't overcome the world, but Jesus is calling you to sing. And even if you don't believe him, you will see he conquered and he has overcome in his name. Believe the gospel. Amen.